Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. And normally on the show, it's me talking directly to you, but occasionally there's someone who I think is so amazing about your wallet and personal finance that I want to bring you in to a shared conversation with someone who I think really can make a difference for you with your wallet. And someone who I have believed so much in for nearly 30 years is Jonathan Clements, who has had an unusual career and personal life, who has dedicated his life to helping individuals cut through the clutter and the disinformation and take control of their own wallet and their own lives. And I'm excited to have this opportunity to share the microphone with you, Jonathan. Well, thanks for having me on clock, and thanks for the overly kind introduction. No, but the introduction is so deserved because you have first in print and then, uh, you know, with newspapers, magazines, books, your own website to teach people about money, doing this podcast and other things you do, your dedication has always been to helping individuals not get ripped off in the investing world and to teach people the basics about how to invest. And I want to go way, way back in the Wayback Machine because you have this odd accent from the former empire, our former rulers, and you as a British-born guy, how did you end up in this personal advice space, and how did you end up in the United States? So it may be hard for you to believe, Clark, but I actually grew up speaking with an American accent. And no, you my, didn't. Yes, I did. Uh, my parents moved here when I was three years old. Uh, my father got a job in Washington, D.C., and then when uh, I was 10, he got posted abroad. He worked for the World Bank, and he was sent on mission to Bangladesh. There was no schools there for me, so they packed me off to a British boarding school where they beat the American accent out of me. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, At 10 years old, you were sent to a boarding school it all explains, by yourself? It explains a lot, but we won't get into my issues here. Why not? That must have, <laughs> Wasn't that really scary for you? Yeah, it's, uh, and yet, this is actually what 
affluent British families do, and they still do it today. Sending your kids off to boarding school at a relatively young age is still common practice in the UK. I would never have done it with my kids. I kept them at home throughout. They went to local public schools. But for affluent British families, sending your kids off to boarding school at a relatively young age is still common. In fact, my mother went to boarding school when she was six. And get this, my two uncles were packed off to boarding school when they were age four. <gasps> wow. Wow. I mean, that that would be so frightening as a child. Certainly, I don't know what it's like at age four or age six, but certainly being at boarding school 24-7 during the period that, you know, Young males are going through puberty. It's a scary place to be. I mean, the hormones are raging. The level of aggression is unbelievable. I mean, if you think it's rough in middle school in America with all the teasing and the rough housing, you should try being at a British boarding school where you do not get to escape at the end of the day. Yuck. Yuck. So having had this traumatic experience starting as a 10-year-old, how did you end up being so altruistic? as who you are and what you've done with your life. So let me tell you why I'm so conscious of money and being careful with it. And it's not just an attribute that I have. It's an attribute that my brothers have as well. Uh, If you go back to my great-great-grandfather, when he died in the 1880s, he was reputed to be the richest man in England. Wow. He had uh, a fortune built largely on a tobacco company, a brand called uh, Cope Cigarettes, that now is part of a much bigger company called Japan Tobacco. He had a single daughter who inherited the family fortune, and she bequeathed that fortune to five children. And those five children blew it. They blew this huge fortune in short order so that My mother and her siblings inherited almost nothing. And so we grew up as kids with the story of how the great family fortune was blown. And the lesson was, you've got to be careful with money. So my two older brothers and my younger sister were very different people, but we are all super frugal and super careful with money. So that is where, for me, the drive comes from that, hey, You've got to look out for yourself. You've got to be careful with money. You've got to be a good saver. And really, you know, you have to be your own best advocate. You know, the typical marketing department of a large corporation, the typical Wall Street house does not have your best interests in heart. So the only person who's going to fight for you is you. And so how did you, realizing this, that you had to live a life of financial independence, save money, live on less than you make and all that. How did that end up in this journalism career that has been part of who you have been for decades? I guess we all have certain talents and I have this one peculiar talent, which is to take the relatively complex world of financial management and put it into plain English. And you know, for some reason or other, people have been willing to cut me a paycheck for most of my career for doing that. And so you have been through life's ups and downs and um, in your personal life and life, just like anybody else. 
but you've managed all through the years, all through the setbacks. And let's face it, working as a journalist is not the best paying profession in the world. You've managed to build financial security for yourself and teach others at the same time. And the secret to financial success is no secret at all. You just have to have great savings habits. If you don't have great savings habits, nothing good is going to happen. You're certainly not going to get there by winning the lottery. Even if you earn a huge income, it's not going to make any difference if you can't live beneath your means. The core of financial success is having great savings habits. And for me, one of the ways that I was able to save great gobs of money, even on a journalist's salary, was to be very careful about, in particular, housing costs. I mean, housing costs are the one thing that's really can derail your financial future. If you're spending a big chunk of your income every month on housing, it's going to be awfully hard to save. So I spent 20 years living in a relatively modest home, and that allowed me to save you know, well over 20% of my income every year. And the result is that today, you know, I don't need to work. And so you spend like 23 out of tw every 24 hours working on Humble Dollar, which is your blog where you teach people about money, and you do this just out of a desire to get the information out there, and so you work this uh, zillion hours a week just to teach. I guess it's my way, Clark, of giving back after you know, having a relatively successful financial life. I've, I have had some, some well-paying jobs. I've feel like I've been very financially fortunate. And along the way, I feel I've learned a lot about money. The site Humble Dollar is my way of giving back. I do make a little bit of money from advertising and so on. But mostly it's about, one, helping other people. And two, even though I've left full-time journalism, I like to be part of the conversation. I like to continue to help people, to discuss what's in the news, to discuss what it takes to be financially successful. Well, I want to go in reverse order because you were talking about living on less than what you make and all the rest that are core fundamentals of any successful financial plan. But you wrote recently an article about what do you do if you've not been able to save sufficient money? And you talked about somebody who's gone through a working lifetime and for whatever reason, they haven't saved money. And you talk about if you have, quote unquote, retired, why working part time in retirement is the key to you not living the life of a pauper. And you even give an example how $10,000 is equivalent to quarter million, which I thought was a very clever phrase you turned. So explain first for somebody who gosh, I know uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda, but here I am, I'm 65 years old, I am retired, even if I didn't want to retire, maybe during the pandemic, they told me I was retired where I worked, I have social security to live on, explain the $10,000 rule and where that fits in your life, making retirement livable even if you weren't able to do the things we're going to talk about moving forward. So among financial planners, there's something called the 4% rule. And what that tells you is that for every $10,000 you have upon retirement, you can expect to pull out 4% or $400 
in the first year of retirement, and thereafter you can step up that sum with inflation. So let's say you could get a part-time job, maybe working a couple of days a week that paid you $10,000 a year. Using the 4% rule, that's the equivalent of having a nest egg that is, as you indicated, Clark, a quarter of a million dollars larger. Now, people might say, oh, you know, but if you're retired and yet you have a job, you're working part-time, you're not really retired. I think that's garbage. I think that's ridiculous. This notion that, you know, we work like dogs, you know, for 40 hours a week, for 40-plus weeks a year, for 40 years, and then we're meant to quit and do nothing for the rest of our lives is absurd. Not only is that a ridiculous way to spend your retirement, I mean, what are you going to do, sit around, watch TV, and eat chews noodles all day? You know, working a couple of days a week, doing something you find fulfilling is a great way to spend a few days each week of retirement. Why not do it? And if it comes with a paycheck, all the better. And for those people who haven't done a great job of saving for retirement, working, at least in their early retirement years, a few days a week seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And this idea of working part-time, people start getting freaked out. They're going to hurt their Social Security benefit. And you don't really hurt your Social Security benefit, do you? Well, there is a Social Security earnings test that applies to people who haven't reached their full Social Security full retirement age, which is age 66 or 67, depending on the year you were born. And that means that you can end up losing a little bit of your Social Security check during those years if you have high earnings. But in the end... You should get the money back. What happens is once you reach your full Social Security retirement age, they will bump up your paycheck, your Social Security check that you get each month, depending on how much of your earnings you lost during this period prior to your full Social Security retirement age. So actually, that can be a double benefit because you're living off the money you're earning in part. And your Social Security you'll get will be larger later in life when you may not be physically able to work. That's absolutely correct, Clark. And in fact, I would encourage people, um, if they're in good health or if they're married and their spouse is in good health, to consider delaying Social Security. Social Security is the best income stream that a retiree can hope for. It's government guaranteed. It's linked to inflation. You'll get it for the rest of your life, and it's at least partially tax-free. For people who want a comfortable retirement and who are in good health, delaying Social Security is a great way to ensure that they have a more comfortable retirement. So I hear from people over and over again who I, I, like a broken record, say, wait till you're 70 to take Social Security. I say it again and again and again, and people have this idea, well, what if I wait till age 70 and I die at 71? All you did, Clark, was cost me all this money. And you know my answer to that? You're not going to know you're dead. <laughs> Clark, that is exactly my response. It is not a decision you will live to regret. <laughs> but but the benefit later in retirement is gigantic, isn't it? It's absolutely enormous. If you delay from age 62 to age 70, you will get a check that is 76 or 77% larger in inflation-adjusted terms. 
And I say to people, even if you're in ill health, remember that if you're married, your spouse will get that check as a survivor benefit. So even if you don't expect it to to make it much past 70 or 71, if your spouse lives to a ripe old age, he or she will be hugely thankful that you delayed taking Social Security. If you care at all about your spouse, delaying Social Security is often the kindest financial act that you can engage in. So I want to flip all the way to the other end of the age range. So uh, let's say I'm in my 20s and I got student loans to deal with, which so many people went to college, they've got the student loans. And at the same time, they hear you and me and everybody else saying, start saving when you're young, when you first start working for retirement. How do you set those priorities when, let's say I'm 24, I'm a year or two out of college, I've got this, um, it's not necessarily a mountain, but I've got meaningful student debt, and I also want to save money for down payment on a house, and I've got my credit card bills, and I'm told I'm supposed to save money for retirement. How do I, when I'm starting out, so I'm not the person who has to work part-time at least at a time I'd like to be retired. How do I deal with all those priorities in your mind? So obviously, if you have student loans, you need to make the minimum payments on those. But having made the minimum payments, I think there are a couple of things that you should focus on doing. So number one, if you have an employer who offers a 401k plan with a matching employer contribution, putting money into that plan and getting that matching contribution should be your top financial priority every year. That money is free money. If your employer is matching your contributions at 50 cents on the dollar, that's like an immediate 50% return on your money. You know, If you have any money to spare at all, you should put that money in the 401k plan up, t- up to the amount of the employer match. Your second priority should be paying off high interest credit card debt. You know, If you've got int- credit card debt that's costing you 20% a year, you are highly unlikely to earn a return greater than that by investing in the stock market unless you're getting that employer match. And then third, because we also need to think about financial emergencies, if you have spare cash, think about funding a Roth IRA. Why would I say funding a Roth IRA for financial emergencies? Well, if you put the money in the Roth IRA, you will get tax-free growth thereafter, which means you, you could potentially have a more comfortable retirement. But, but... If you end up having a financial emergency, one of the nice things about a Roth IRA is you can pull out your contributions at any time with no taxes and penalties owed. So if you put $5,000 into a Roth IRA, you suddenly need the money back. You can pull that money back with no taxes or penalties owed as long as you don't touch the account's investment earnings. So when I'm hearing you lay out priorities, you're saying pay the minimum on student loans put into an employer-provided plan till the match, do a Roth IRA as a combo of savings for retirement and potentially a rainy day account. What do you recommend for somebody who is looking medium term, they want to buy a home and they've got to come up with money for a down payment. Is that from the Roth or are you wanting them to do a separate savings account specifically for doing a down payment on the home. Oh, you know, Clark, they should just put in Bitcoin. That's absolutely what they should do. 
<laughs> no. You can pull the money out of a Roth IRA and use it for the house down payment, but ideally, money put into a Roth IRA should n- never come out until retirement because that's get, money is getting tax-free growth, and there's nothing better than tax-free growth. So if you're looking ahead and saying, yeah, I want to buy a house five or ten years down the road, finding a high-yield online savings account – high-yield, unfortunately, these days means 0.5%, but finding a high-yield online savings account and putting money into that on a regular basis is the way to go. You can't take a lot of risk with money that you're going to likely end up using in the next five years or so. Well, you know, when you and I came of age, people got married very, very young. And today, uh, people in their 20s, maybe even in their 30s, when they decide to either uh, move in with somebody they're just living with or get married is significantly later in life than it used to be. And people have been out working. They have their own money. They have their own bills. What do you recommend to someone in their 20s or 30s who's now matching up with somebody either with benefit of marriage or not on how they handle their personal finances as they now are a couple if you aren't married i would advise keeping your finances completely separate let's face it relationships don't necessarily work out you don't want a breakup to cause huge financial upheaval. You certainly don't want to rush out and buy a home with somebody to whom you're not married if you're not sure that the relationship is going to last. I mean, in those initial years, what you want to figure out is what are the financial habits of this person that I'm living with? I mean, are they a good saver? You know, do they fund their retirement plan at work? Do they carry credit card debt? You know, if you marry somebody with bad financial habits, their problems become your problems. So one of the most important things you can do in those early relationship years is, as some people say, get financially naked. Figure out what their financial habits are and let them know what your financial habits are and see whether you truly are compatible. I've been told by marriage counselors that the number one issue among couples, the number one thing they fight about is money. So you better make sure that you know once you get beyond the the romantic, hot and heavy stage that you are indeed financially compatible. So uh, speaking of people that are living together and then it doesn't work out, I can't even count how many times I've gotten a call from somebody who co-signed an auto loan for the person who was their significant other, who then isn't their significant other anymore. They don't pay on the loan and the person who co-signed has their credit absolutely ruined. They may end up with a repo. They may end up with a deficiency notice. Um, when is it okay to co-sign for your significant other for a vehicle loan? Somebody you're living with but not married to. <sighs> I'm inclined to say never, but if you're truly confident that the relationship is going to last and you're truly confident that your significant other has good financial habits, then maybe. Uh, But I wouldn't be in a big rush to do it. So going back to the thing you said about being financially naked. So you you do end up laying it out for each other and you realize that your 
financial goals and your financial habits are really, really different than the person you love. Is that death to the relationship in your mind, or is it an adjustment that needs to come in the relationship? Oh, come on, Clark. You're just inviting me to be you know, cold-hearted here. I am. I just, I, I mean, because there's romance, there's love, and then there's money. <laughs> so there is a great study that came out of the Federal Reserve, maybe even been the Federal Reserve in Atlanta, that looked at differences in credit scores and couples who got married who had significant differences in credit scores, which was a pretty good indicator of how financially careful you are, those relationships were much less likely to last. What I would say is, you know, if you're involved with somebody whose financial habits are clearly different than yours in a worse way, <laughs> then I would be very leery of getting too involved financially. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so let's move on to the next step. Couple does get married. How do you want them to handle financial goals and handle their money? Well, I think before you get married, you need to figure out, figure out whether you are on the same page. You should have a list of common goals. How, you know, what, what do you want to do? What age do you want to retire at? Do you want to buy a house? You know, do you want to have kids? All of these things it's crucial that you talk about it so that you are on the same page and then you should be making commitments about how much you're going to save, when you're going to take on debt and so on. It doesn't mean that this isn't going to prevent problems from happening, but having the conversation ahead of time has the potential to end run some problems. But, you know, marriage is a crapshoot. Relationships are a crapshoot. You can't be sure it's going to work out. But to the extent that you talk about stuff and you lay everything out on the table, it does improve the odds. So what about joint checking accounts once a couple gets married? Let's say they're uh, 32 years old when they tie the knot. Do they have uh, his account, hers account, and a their account? I think that's not a bad way to go. And then you'd say, well, what's their account going to be for and maybe it's for the utilities and for the groceries and to pay for the vacation and you both commit to contributing a certain amount to that account each month and that amount may be the same amount for both of you it may be proportional to your income but the idea is in some sense by funding that joint checking account create a budget of how much you're going to spend on utilities how much you're going to spend on food 
how much you're going to spend on vacations. And with any luck, that will start to limit your spending and prevent things from getting out of control. What you don't want is a situation where, let's say, you get a joint credit card and you, there's no check on one another. You don't say, no, what do you mean? You just went and spent X thousands of dollars on golfing equipment. You spent X thousands of dollars on shoes. That sort of thing is when people end up in bankruptcy. So you need to have some rules around it. I would be more reluctant to have a joint credit card than I would be to have a joint checking account. Okay, I appreciate that because there's the other aspect of people having secret spending problems which don't really expose themselves till later and having separate credit cards makes it easier for somebody to hide an unhealthy spending pattern. But you still think it's better to have the separate cards? I think it's better to have the separate cards because, if nothing else, if somebody turns out to have a spending problem and it's on their own credit card, it will be their problem. That is true. Uh, So let's move on to the next decade, the 40s. I can't even tell you how many people contact me with guilt, clear guilt, that they're in their 40s and they haven't saved a penny for retirement. And they just pick on themselves no end. And a lot of life happens between when people finish whatever level of education they finish and the time they reach their 40s. And so I tell people, first of all, stop with the guilt thing. You are where you are. So it is true. It's an article of faith. A lot of people don't save their first nickel towards retirement till they pass their 40th birthday. And then you look at those charts that show how much money you have to save to be able to retire. And it's like this massive amount of money they'd have to put aside every month, which is not possible. So you got people with guilt and fear. What do you tell that 40 something who has that guilt and fear? How are they going to get to the retirement finish line. You got to start today. Yes, it would have been better to start two decades ago, but if you haven't started before, today is the best day to start. And the fact is you can make the numbers work. There are all kinds of ways to make retirement affordable, particularly if you you are starting in your 40s. That gives you potentially 25 years to save. You won't get as much help from the financial markets as you would have if you'd started earlier. But you still have plenty of chance to save money. You can think about steps you get closer to retirement, like moving to a less expensive home, moving to a less expensive part of the country, figuring out ways to cut your expenses, going from two cars to one. There are lots of ways to make the retirement the numbers work, but you can't make the numbers work if you don't start saving. So the number one thing you've got to do is, yeah, forget the guilt, forget about how high the mountain could potentially be, and instead start climbing. And that means start socking away the the dollars and then figure out how you can align your spending with whatever it is you end up having at age 65. So the same formula you talked about, if somebody was in their 20s, It's just starting it in their 40s and give the guilt a rest. Give the guilt a rest. I mean, in truth, you know, there probably are 
sacrifices you may want to make along the way. You may want to start talking to the kids about how you can't afford to pay the full cost of college, or maybe they should go to community college for the first two years and transfer to a full year school, four year school. Little tweaks like that. Maybe it's time to say, all right, rather than trading down to a smaller home at retirement, maybe we should trade down t- today to reduce our housing costs. Remember, for the typical American family, the two biggest costs are cars and housing. Housing eats up about a third of the typical American's income. Cars eat up another 17%. If you want to cut down your spending so that you have more money available to save, focus on housing, focus on your cars. If you cut down on those in your 40s, you'll have more money in your 60s, and maybe you'll have the retirement that you want. So we've got a lot of people who, um, you know, as you said, marriages don't work out. They, at some point, uh, many times in their 40s or early 50s, they do end up getting divorced. And that can be a train wreck for your personal finances. So how do you recommend that people with all the different needs we have and all that, and we're talking about, you know, saving for retirement and all that, and at that moment, the house is on fire. You know, they, they can't add a re- retirement room to the house. The house is on fire. What do you say to somebody who is in middle age and their uh, personal situation, their marriage is disintegrating? How do you rebuild the financial blocks at that point? You know, Clark, I'd like to tell you there's some magic formula, but the key, as always, is to save money, is not to spend it on foolish things. In terms of the divorce itself, you know, people take out their anger through their lawyers and end up pissing away tens of thousands of dollars. You know, if you're going to get divorced, if you, to the extent that you possibly can, be civil about it so that you don't end up spending tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. To the extent that you can, try to negotiate the divorce between you and your estranged spouse. If you're smart about it, you can come out of it in one financial piece. You know, there's no reason that a, mar- a divorce in your 40s can totally should totally derail your finances if you're smart about it. I mean, I don't I'm not going to advocate that people stay in a unhappy marriage in order to you know, improve or to maintain their current financial situation. Yeah, if you get divorced, you're going to take a financial hit, but don't make the hit bigger than it has to be. And so even with that, and that is that is a thing that derails the path people are on, it doesn't mean a permanent derailment. I mean, you can rebuild, right? So uh, I got divorced in my 30s, and my uh, Ex-wife and I negotiated our divorce settlement ourselves, and then we had we went to a lawyer and we paid five hundred dollars to get it put into legal language, and then we both went off to a, a lawyer, our own separate lawyer, and spent an hour with the lawyer reviewing it, and then we at that time it cost us two hundred dollars an hour to have this new individual lawyer review the document, and we got a few tips to improve the settlement. So for nine hundred dollars, we managed to get a divorce. And within a few short years, you know, my finances were back where they were, in part because we didn't cause that much financial damage during the process of the divorce. But I have to tell you, I've 
spoken to others about that. I've explained what it took to have a civil divorce and how you know, we managed to uh, save so much money. And indeed, you know, we, we remain reasonably good friends today. And not a lot of whole, not a whole lot of people have been able to do it. And speaking of which, I was just realizing I brought up one negative scenario after another, and that's so not like me. I'm such an optimistic person, and and the reason that I've gone, I've thrown all these negative questions at you, is that so often in life we'll have this idea of the way our life is going to go. But there's always the unexpected that occurs and that we always have to move past the unexpected. And it's obvious from what you just said, you did that in your own life. And you have about you what I would call a sunny optimism. Is that accurate? That is accurate. I have rough days like everybody else. And I get up the next morning and think, oh, this is going to be a better day. And yes, we all make financial mistakes. We all have financial emergencies. We all get you know, nasty surprises thrown our way. I mean, it, it happens to me on a regular basis. But if you're smart about how you manage your money, if you manage your finances with a certain amount of breathing room in them, then you can cope with these bumps along the way. And you get up tomorrow and you'll figure it out and things will be better by the end of the day. So we've talked general philosophy, where you should save money, how you deal with rough patches. What we have not touched on at all is whether you are capable of handling the money that you, if you live on less than what you make and you're investing money, who's capable of handling money for themselves and who needs to go pay a full commission stockbroker or a financial planner, 1% or whatever, to handle their money? Who's self-serve and who needs full serve? It's a great question. So we know from the stats that only half of Americans even have any money in the stock market. These are people with the extra dollars to invest in the stock market. And of those, I would say that Perhaps half of them are capable of managing their own money to, to a reasonable degree. They have the self-discipline to save regularly, and they have the tenacity to buy a simple portfolio, my preference, low-cost index funds, and just let it ride out. But probably for the, for the other half of these people who are invested in the financial markets – yeah, they probably do need some coaching. And the question is, what's the best way to get that coaching? It certainly isn't from a full-service stockbroker. I mean, are there any of those left anymore? People working on commission? I sure hope not. You know, most financial advisors these days are financial advisors who charge a percent of your portfolio. Typically, that, that 1% that you mentioned, Clark, that's a viable model if you have a very large portfolio for people with smaller portfolios. What I would suggest is trying to find somebody who you can pay by the hour because all you may need is a couple of hours of their time to get you pointed in the right direction. And then you go back every year, a couple of years for a checkup. So you spend a couple of hours with a financial planner who charges by the hour. It might be 
expensive couple of hours. It might cost you five or six hundred dollars, but they'll make sure that you're saving enough and that you've got a decent looking portfolio. And then it, you go leave, and your goal is just to keep shoveling away the dough every month. And if you do that, you go back in a couple of years and say, "Hey, am I still on track, or do I need to do anything?" For most people, I believe that's the model that they should follow, and I think that's the model we're going to see more and more of in the years ahead. So we've got XY Planning Network where you pay a monthly fee in order to be able to talk with somebody who is a fiduciary. We've got the robo-investment advisors like Betterment and Wealthfront, and now Vanguard, Schwab, and Fidelity have all scrambled to come up with their robos. So you said like uh, maybe half of people are capable of doing things themselves and the other half need help. This fuzzy middle ground of having the robos, who is that appropriate for, in your opinion? So I think the robos are an, an interesting solution. But what I would say to you, Clark, is when you go to a robo-advisor and you pay you know, 0.25% or 0.5% for them to put together a portfolio for you, what are you getting that you wouldn't get by going to Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity and buying one of their target date retirement funds that are built around index funds. You know, those funds will give you a prepackaged mix. It'll be automatically rebalanced for you. It's as good a portfolio as you're going to be able to design on your own. And the cost is substantially cheaper. I mean, these days, I think Schwab charges 0.08%. That's $0.08 cents for every $100 you get invested to be in one of their target date index funds. Fidelity and Vanguard are a little higher than that. But these are complete portfolio solutions at extremely low costs in a single mutual fund. You know, These funds have low minimums. In the case of Schwab and Fidelity, they have no investment minimum. If you bought one of those funds and you just shoveled money into it on a regular basis, I think you'll you would do far better than probably 90% of the investors out there. So why is it that financial planners despise the target retirement funds? I hear it from people all the time that they hear their financial person trash talks the target retirement funds. Well, <laughs> to ask the question is to answer it, right? You've got these guys charging 1% a year to create a customized solution for you. And then, of course, that customized solution involves putting you into funds that they that also charge expenses. Or I can just go off and pay, you know, something like 0.1% to get a solution that's pretty much exactly the same in a single package. Why why would I go to the financial planner and pay 1%? No, I have an answer for you. You know, in certain cases, there are people who do need the handholding, who are going to panic when the market drops. There are certain people who have very complicated estate planning needs, and perhaps the financial planner is going to help with that. These might be people who are executives of big corporations and have a lot of money in a single stock, and they need to have a portfolio designed around that large stock position. So in those cases... Going to that financial planner and potentially paying that 1% is not a bad thing to do. But for the vast majority of people, the great unwashed masses, of which I would count one of my, myself, buying a target date retirement fund is probably a pretty good solution, especially if it's one of these ones that's built around index funds. Well, Jonathan Clements, we're going to leave it right there. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and 
Uh, how do people subscribe to Humble Dollar if they want to know more from you? So if you go to the, uh, the website, you go to HumbleDollar.com, right at the top of the homepage, there's a little box. You just insert your email address and hit subscribe, and it's totally free. I send out a newsletter every week with links to all the latest articles, which will always include one article by me. There's a ton of other information on the site, and it's all completely free. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, and I'm grateful to you for your dedication to your fellow American, and it makes such a difference for people to know that they have more power over their own wallet than they realize. Oh, thanks for having me on, Clark. It's been a lot of fun. 